And welcome to the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> we, we're, we're more suboptimal than usual today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of our microphones has uh, taken a, a leave of absence. And one of my neighbors is doing some major construction. <laughs> so <laughs> so the echoey, roomy sound uh, is the fact that we have to share a mic. Uh, apologies for that. And the... Uh, the jackhammering, uh, crashing, thumping, and it, all other noises are courtesy of Jeff's neighbor. Yep. As, as we just said, uh, it is what it is. It is what it is. We're rolling. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Beer Bonnet Podcast. Uh, with me, of course, is, as always, Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and in 2019, look for his new book, The Widmer Way. Uh, you can find him blogging at Beervana and uh, tweeting at, at Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. You can find him tweeting at Beeronomics. Uh, you can. Uh, so how are you doing? I'm good. Um, yeah, it's a Friday night. Well, it's it's now night. It is. This is actually unusual for us. We yeah. Normally we do this during the day. It's now after work on a Friday evening. Um, so maybe that will cease the jackhammer for good. I don't hear it yet, so that's a good thing. Uh, it, it, yeah. it, it's that moment. Uh, beer Twitter calls beer o'clock. It's beer o'clock, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's been kind of a, a great day, but we've had some nice weather lately. So uh, it's starting to morph into the warmer temperatures, which I uh, responded to a tweet of yours showing that the beer trends are starting to turn up as the spring gets warmer. Yeah, I meant to mention to you, but I didn't. Those were relative to a year ago. So it's, it's uh, April. Oh, the year over year percentage changes. Yeah, so oh, it's right. it's April 2018 is up over April. So my seasonal analysis didn't work. No, it didn't. Well, that's good. But news, I can't then. expect you to understand economics. <laughs> well, I understand a well uh, described set of data. <laughs> hey, uh, I, just, <laughs> I just put the screen cap out there. Uh, I exonerate myself. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, today we're going to explore something uh, a little. Uh, unusual for us uh, beer folks, but not unusual for you, Jeff. Uh, we're going to explore a burgeoning industry that may affect beer's prospects going forward, which is cannabis. Oregon, one of the states that have uh, legalized recreational uh, cannabis use, uh, still illegal federally, but uh, Oregon, along with eight other states in the District of Columbia, have fully legalized cannabis, um, and another 20 have legalized medical marijuana. Recreational cannabis has been legal in Oregon since 2015, and today we're going to speak with a very, very special guest, uh, who in fact is a cannabis business owner, who will help us understand this new world. That's right, and we'll save the big reveal for after we come back from the news. Earlier this month, the first harvest of Washington State University-bred lion malt, or, or sorry, I'm sorry, lion barley was malted for the first time. Uh, this is the second type of barley created for Northwest growers. The first, called Fritz, uh, is grown in the wetter regions and is behind the Skagit Valley malt, which you and I, Patrick, saw a lot when we had our uh, Washington visit. A lot of those guys were using Skagit Valley malt. Okay. Um, Lion has been engineered to grow in the arid regions of eastern Washington and Oregon. So this is yet another one of those cool artisanal barleys that's coming out. 
Yeah, uh, Oregon State's working on some too. That's right. Oregon State has uh, has also released some and maybe release more. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure other universities in other parts of the country are doing it. But this was some cool news uh, for local uh, barley growers and brewers here in the Northwest. So I was kind of excited to see that. Nice. Yeah. Uh, second piece of news is that the Brewers Association uh, has also released final full numbers this week on brewery production from 2017. They give specifics to broad numbers, and we've already, uh, two broad numbers that we've already seen. Uh, <laughs> all right, where's my copy editor? <laughs> hey, man, read the text. Read the text. It's clear. Uh, no, we've already been describing in 2017. I assume that's what we meant. Uh, in particular, a, lo- a number of larger U.S. breweries were down, led by Boston Beer. It was down 14%, and Long Trail down 24%. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> uh, they also included numbers on craft breweries purchased by large companies. Tellingly, all were up, with the sole exception of Goose Island, which is only down uh, 1%, but it was down. Yeah. <clears throat> so that goes to show a lot of the pressure that we're seeing on those large regionals, many of which were down, uh, is coming at least in part from the Ballast Points and Lagunitas and uh, High End. Yeah. So, yeah. Indeed. Uh, all of that was fairly well known, but it was interesting that the Brewers Association tracked the the formerly craft craft brewers and saw where they were. I hadn't seen that data before. Yeah, so. and I'm putting you on the spot, but you re- recently reviewed a book about Goose Island. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, do you remember the title? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. It's uh, Barrel Aged, Barrel Aging and uh, Selling Out. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a story by Josh Noel, who's a reporter for the um, uh, Chicago Tribune, mm-hmm. and he's been reporting on this for uh, seven years. He interviewed a ton of people, and he kind of told the story of Goose Island and from, the takeover. From the takeover, the, the AB takeover, and the aftermath. Right. Yeah, it looked, it, it, uh, it seems uh, fascinating. It is a really great book, I have to tell you. I, uh, it, it's a... People who don't like beer would, would, would enjoy it if they like business stories, and people who like beer will find it even more fascinating. It really revealed a lot of Budweiser and Iserbush's approach and mm-hmm. their thinking and the sort of discontinuities and approach between craft and big beer. Um, and it's really a fun read. I, yeah. I took it. I, I got my review copy before my trip to Hawaii, uh, and I read it on the beach. And it was like <laughs> such a page-turner. There I was on the beach, and I was reading my... My industry book. Right. Um, so it's really good. I highly recommend it for everybody. Uh, I have to steal yours and get my own. <clears throat> All right. Okay. So main topic. Barrel-aged stout and selling out. Barrel-aged stout and selling out. You know, I knew it was... Uh, there was a word there. I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. That, that makes it all rhyme. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Uh, so Josh Knoll, his name? Yeah. Josh Knoll, barrel-aged stout and selling out. Look for it in your booksellers now? It comes out on June 1st. So yeah. All right. now. You buy it now. Buy it. Pre-order it now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's switch to our main topic. So uh, as for our main topic today, we're, we're going to uh, look at the uh, cannabis industry in Oregon in particular. And our very, very special guest is someone well known to both of us, but particularly known to you. Right. <laughs> uh, Sally Allworth, uh, your wife. Um, Sally is a co-owner with uh, Devin Anthony of Luminous Botanicals a small company making therapeutic oils. Uh, Sally and Devin founded Luminous Botanicals before full recreational cannabis was legalized, so they started in the medical marijuana market. 
And Sally has been involved, deeply involved with the Oregon Cannabis Association, which helped advise and lobby the state as it put together these brand new rules governing recreational cannabis. She's met with the governor, state legislatures, legislators, uh, Portland City Council members, and Portland's mayor, as well as agencies responsible for implementing the new laws. Uh, we thought she would be a valuable person to help us understand cannabis, and because she has followed the beer industry so closely through Jeff's work, uh, help us understand this new industry, and we'll talk to her about the crossover potentially between the two industries. That's right. So now she's in the other room, so we're going to halt this. We'll go grab her, and then we'll come back and yeah, have that and we we'll all huddle around our one <laughs> one <laughs> <right>. functional mic. <laughs> <laughs> and this is nice because uh, it's not just a clip. We're going to actually have Sally in studio. Because she's handy. She's, yeah. She's it's, easy. It's, it's, it's been, easy to locate. It's been a while since we've done that. That's right. <laughs> Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> All right. So we'll be right back. Okay. And we're back. And with us is Sally Allworth, co-owner, co-founder of Luminous Botanicals, uh, and happened to be married to my uh, co-host, Jeff. That's right. <laughs> Welcome, well, Sally. Although, as I was thinking about this... We met Sally roughly at the same time at, at 1993 at the University of Wisconsin, yes. where we all three were going to grad school. So That's correct. So here, here we, we are. are. Here we are. Who would have, who would have guessed? <laughs> it's true. The, the, the fame and later. fortune of podcasting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you've overheard the podcast many times. Uh, huddled away in the back room of the house. <laughs> so it's good for you to join us. I am also a subscriber. Oh, excellent. Oh, and have you rated us? don't know. Oh, oh okay. sorry. So you got to rate us apparently <laughs> okay. and then other things too, but I don't remember what they are. Uh, rating is good. Subscribe. Well, you are a subscriber. So that's the other thing. Those are the two things. Rate and subscribe. Okay. Rate, subscribe. Recommend us to friends. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, perhaps we should just start by uh, having you explain to us or describe to us the history of Luminous Botanicals, how you got started why cannabis, and uh, where you are now. Sure. Uh, back in 2013, my good friend Devin Anthony had a pretty serious back injury, mm -hmm. and he went through alternative care and conventional, conventional care, and at a certain point his doctor said, if this heals, it'll take one to two years. Would you like a prescription for opiates in the meantime? And he thought, no, not really. Uh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, and he started investigating alternatives, and he got his uh, registration card in the Oregon Medical Marijuana Program. And he found a high CBD uh, alcohol extract that worked very well for him. You better explain the high CBD, or are you going to go there? <laughs> uh, so there are two... Cannabis is a very complex plant. It contains over uh, or right about 100 chemical components, but the two that people know the most about are THC, which is the thing that makes you feel high, and CBD, uh, which, stands, which is cannabidiol. Uh, CBD is naturally a very good antispasmodic, anti-inflammatory, uh, anti-anxiety uh, medicine. And uh, because Devin's back issue related to inflamed discs, he was looking for something that would, would really help the underlying condition. So he started taking this concentrate uh, right before bed every night. And he hadn't slept through the night for months. Uh, every time he rolled over, his back would tweak and he would wake up and he would 
with this concentrate, uh, he would take an amount that he described as being about half a grain of rice, and he would sleep through the night and be mostly pain-free the next day. But it was very, very difficult to dose with accurately because it was so concentrated, and um, uh, the kind of concentrate he was using is, is often referred to as Rick Simpson oil, or RSO, and uh, it's dense and sticky, and it's really hard to measure the right amount, sorry. And uh, so if he got a little too, if he got the right amount, he'd sleep perfectly through the night. If he got a little too much, he would be uh, so high he couldn't sleep at all. (laughs) So at a certain point, he started to think, there's got to be a way to make a product that is potent enough to deal with my pain, but easier to dose with. And that was the inspiration for our primary product, which is called the Universal Cannabis Tonic. And it's an oil-based infusion, almond and coconut Mm -hmm. oil-based infusion that's standardized in potency to 25 milligrams per milliliter. And it comes in a bottle with a graduated dropper. It's marked for a 10 milligram dose and a 20 milligram dose. So it makes it very easy for therapeutic users to figure out where they're comfortable and then hit that every time. Right. And so when you first entered the market, it was purely medical marijuana market in Oregon. That's right. We made our first sales in 2014 and Oregon legalized recreational cannabis, uh, actually voted to uh, legalize recreational cannabis right about that time. And then that was implemented on October 1st, 2016. I was just gonna, yeah, I was just going to say uh, another beer connection. Uh, in 2015, we had the Craft Brewers Conference here, and there's, as a component of the Craft Brewers Conference, there's this huge expo, and as Sally and Devin were getting, were scaling up and scaling up, they were needing better, bigger and bigger equipment, so I gave Devin my, uh, my tag so he could walk through, and he found some fabricators, some brewery fabricators to help Sally make some equipment, because she had been using a lot of brewery equipment and going to F.H. Steinbarts to buy stuff to make this oil with, which is pretty cool. That's yeah. So actually that dovetails exactly into my question, my follow-up question to you, which is, could you describe briefly the process by which you make your tonic? Sure. We take uh, organic almond oil, organic coconut oil, and then we steep clean green certified cannabis trim. So clean green certified is basically the Oregon standard for organically grown Mm -hmm. because the USDA will not certify a federally illegal crop as organic. Fancy that. Uh, So the process is very similar to making a can of butter at home, if anybody's ever done that. I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's just, it's some heat. All of the beneficial components, all of the terpenes and cannabinoids in cannabis are naturally oil-soluble, so they infuse over and you don't need to use any alcohol or chemical solvents. Uh, So we make a strong infusion, we laboratory test it for potency. Based on that, we blend it to balance the THC-CBD ratio and hit our target potency, and then we lab test again to make sure that we've gotten an accurate mix. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, well, I was just going to get back to the um, uh, the uh, story of the, the production vessels. So, is this something that's um, like beer, uh, uh, subject to a large economies of scale? So, you're doing it at a fairly small scale. Would it be a lot cheaper per ounce if you were able to do it on a very large scale? It's a little hard to say. So it, it's a very odd time in the market here in Oregon. Uh, 
the state licensed a lot of cannabis producers, and last year we had really perfect growing conditions mm -hmm. for the outdoor crop. And uh, we produce essentially three times as much cannabis as the state can consume. So We're gonna come, come on, back. Oregonians, get on. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna come back around to why that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in the fall, we had farms calling us up and saying, uh, "I have thousands of pounds of cannabis ready to extract, and I'll sell it to you for a hundred dollars a pound." We actually chose not to buy at that price. We have annual contracts with the two farms that we work mm -hmm. with, and we know that $100 a pound is below their cost to produce. Right. So we negotiated what felt like a fair price on both sides. So right now, it doesn't matter how much you're producing. Basically, your core raw material is as cheap as it's ever going to be. Right. Uh, and our process is a little more labor-intensive than right. what some other folks do. So uh, we are... Uh, if we were willing to shift our process, we could, I'm sure, uh, benefit from some economies of scale, but right. we really feel like the quality of the product would suffer. Mm -hmm. And uh, we aim to be a small craft producer. So let, let's look a little bit at uh, the way, so one thing that, one, one of the reasons we thought it would be interesting to have you on is, you know, Patrick and I talk a lot about uh, economy, uh, markets, and how how the different pieces uh, work in a market. And this is a weirdly artificial market. Uh, it is still federally, federally illegal, so you can't have uh, sales across state lines. That's right. Um, and each state that passes recreational uh, cannabis then has to go through a rules process and figure That's out the whole the whole thing. How to create a market. Yeah. yeah. And every state does it slightly differently. <laughs> And um, and you were you you had a front row view for that. You were uh, able to uh, be on advisory committees and sit in with some of the political leaders who were making these rules. Would you talk a little bit about what the state was thinking, and how, you know, what 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 is this market they they created, and how does it work? Well, the original piece of uh, legislation that was passed, or the the original measure that was passed. Uh, included a restriction on outside investment. So the, the first thought was that uh, because Oregon had had a medical market since the 90s, uh, the state wanted to create a recreational market that, that basically rewarded those small businesses and supported them for, mm -hmm. having, for having laid the groundwork for the recreational market. Uh, but then there was a strong lobbying effort to, and the way they were containing that was limiting the amount of out-of-state investment you could have in your business. And then there was a very strong lobbying effort from some larger businesses uh, to, to remove that. And that did actually get passed. And so there are no restrictions on outside investment in the Oregon cannabis industry. And so we've, we've really seen this flood of money into the system uh, and the state is finding itself suddenly looking at a market that is rapidly consolidating uh, even though that was not the intention right. they wanted uh, I mean they've they've issued something like 2,000 
licenses across all categories, producers, processors, retailers, wholesalers. Uh, and we're seeing the creation of these big groups that are uh, vertically integrated. They own farms, they own processing sites, they own chains of stores. Five, so you're, seven. Allowed to, you're allowed to be completely vertically integrated. You can go from, from growing to retail. You can. They can't all happen in the same location. Okay. Yeah. So you <laughs> can't I, have a grow room in the bottom. And no, a single so. a single corporation or individual can uh, receive licenses in all the categories, mm-hmm. and then there are rules about uh, having separate addresses. And if you own a large piece of land, what it looks like to subdivide that. So this is the portion that's your farm, and this is the portion that you're processing area uh and, but, what, and why what was the thinking there what are they trying to avoid i'm not completely sure there huh. were there were some things that never made sense to yeah. me about the way some of these rules were structured from the start because, well well one big thing obviously is the state had a huge interest and many people in the state had a huge huge interest in inhibiting legal activity so this is a market where you bring people from the black market into uh, a, a marketplace and just listening to you Sally through the, the course of the months that you were involved in this uh, so much of the thinking was involved in it had a like the baseline rationale was how do we inhibit illegal activity right so uh, back under the Obama administration uh, the Justice Department released a memorandum to states that had legal medical and recreational programs and uh, it's referred to as the Cole memo because Cole was the one who drafted it. And it, it basically laid out the terms under which justice would leave state legal businesses alone. And it was, you need to make sure that you've set up your system to prevent diversion. Uh, you need to make sure that there are no sales to minors. You're preventing that. That uh, the proceeds are not funding criminal operations. That they're not associated with violence or violent crime. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. There might have been one more point, but those were the main ones. So the Cole memo really formed the foundation of the state's thinking. And whenever they got uncomfortable with the way the industry was pushing for the rules to be written, that was always the thing that they would go back to. Oh, we have to do it this way. Otherwise, the feds will come down on all of us. And there, and there was a lot of the thinking about. There's a heavy regulation for all of you. You mentioned uh, growers, retailers, and uh, processors. Processors. So each one of these has heavy rules around them uh, to regulate uh, compliance with these 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 rules to prevent this stuff going to the black market. That's right. Which but, you don't have in other industries. You don't you don't have that kind of control at every level. It's uh, it's actually fairly similar, I think, to pharmaceutical industry rules. Uh-huh. Uh, we have what's referred to as seed-to-sale tracking. Uh, so the state has a monitoring system, and if you're a farm, when you plant clones or seeds, you have to register those plants and put a, an RFID tag on them. Hmm. And then when you harvest, you have to log that information. You have to log your yield. And then when a grower transfers to a processor, they take the material they're transferring, they put a new tag on it, and that tag is transferred from them to us. And then we do what we do. And when we transfer to a retailer, we re-tag just what's going to them. Mm -hmm. 
And then every time they have a sale, they have a retailer has a sale, they have to log it, and that inventory and sales information gets fed back in. It gets synchronized once a day with the state tracking system. So there's intended to be this tight paper trail. Yeah, chain of custody. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. a chain of custody. Yeah. So just a, a couple of nuts and bolts. So you have to be a licensed retailer to sell it. Yes. Uh, as a retailer, I can buy from any of the licensed processors. That's right. Or producers. Or producers themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and producers and processors are able to distribute entirely independently on their own. There's no middleman like there is in beer. That's right. We're allowed to self-distribute. And that was something we, we argued about quite a bit during mm -hmm. the rulemaking process. And uh, all of the small businesses felt like, I, I especially having seen the beer, beer world through Jeff, I know that often the distributors, they're the bottleneck. Right. Uh, they decide often if a business can get their bottled product to market or their kegs to market. And we did not, as small processors, want to be in the position where we were required to use somebody else because we knew there were going to be hundreds and hundreds of licenses granted. Right. Uh, and we didn't know how many wholesalers there might be or mm -hmm. how difficult it would be to get a contract. Mm -hmm. And the, the percentages that wholesalers in cannabis uh, charge are pretty high it's uh it's common for it to be 15 to 20 percent yeah. of the wholesale price of the product so let's circle back just for a second to consolidation though because that's one of the things that people talk about with beer distribution is that you're able to potentially elbow into areas that you couldn't otherwise if you're a small mm -hmm. so how do you feel like uh the advantages or disadvantages of being a small producer and self-distributing um i imagine it means you have to you know, for lack of a better term, hustle a lot with all of the different <laughs> and make relationships with different retailers, right? We do. We do have to hustle a lot. And uh, our product is a, a bit of a niche product. It's not exactly what anybody thinks about when they think about cannabis. Mm -hmm. uh, so in order for it to really sell well, we need the staff at the dispensaries to be thoughtful and well-educated, people who really understand the product and are likely to recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, because the whole process of buying cannabis in Oregon is mediated. I make the product, I sell it to a retailer, but it's their retail staff who interact directly with the consumers. And so whether my product sells or not depends very much on whether they're, those bud tenders, they're called, are advocating for it uh, with customers. Uh, Sorry, I've lost the thread no, of what okay. the I, question was. No, that's exactly the question. Uh, and then the, the follow-up to that is, so just... just Oh, to... yeah. So we, uh, our product sells best at the independent shops that are really still more focused on serving a therapeutic audience. Right. Uh, we don't do well in, in the big shops where the owners, you know, the corporate owners have said, we aspire to be the Walmart of weed. Right. <laughs> it doesn't really work for us. So yeah, we've built this network of mostly independent shops and we know them and they know mm -hmm. us and we as owners still come in and make right. deliveries, make sales calls, provide su sales support. And, you know, that, that part of the industry, I think, is thriving. But I, I think... It's our market is starting to evolve in the direction that 
uh, beer is at where, you know, in Portland, we have a very thriving craft beer scene, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's still not 100% of the market. Right. You know, it's still... And, and, and Nash- getting close. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Portland's maybe a little different, but right. nationally, yeah. uh, craft is what twenty percent of the market overall. Less than that, probably. Yeah, and and we're expecting that the segment we're in uh, in the cannabis world will be a similar kind of ten to twenty percent right. of the market, and most of the sales will go to the guys who are selling four dollar grams. Right, right, and so just to be clear. If you wanted to sell yourself, you could. You just couldn't do it at your production facility. Right. We'd have to get a retailer's license, mm-hmm. and we'd have to set up a separate location. But you could have your Luminous Botanicals boutique. We could have <laughs> a Luminous Botanicals boutique. It's true. And and I should mention that... But, but where, where it was located is, is dictated by very strict laws, too. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. right. You can't be within uh, a thousand feet of a school, and you can't be within a thousand feet of an existing retail, cannabis oh. retail shop. And oh, okay. So it, and some cities don't let you locate there at all. At all yeah, That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, and I, I should mention that uh, we can't ship our product. You cannot use the federal mails to handle cannabis. Yeah. So there are no online sales. Uh, in, a, right. in a normal business for a product like ours, especially ours coming in a bottle in a box and being very discreet, you'd probably do a lot of business uh, online and shipping it out, and that is, that is completely illegal. Yeah, and, and uh, are there any banks that work with the marijuana industry in Oregon yet? There are two that I know of so far, and I've heard of a third, and they're all credit unions. Uh-huh. They're all they all have their charters from the state, okay. not from the federal government. Right. Uh, but in order to bank the cannabis business, they do themselves have to go through a very strict compliance routine once a quarter on all of their cannabis accounts, uh, essentially to prove to the FDIC that. They're being responsible and they're not laundering drug money. And so they're, they're not losing their certification from the federal government to do their normal banking. Right, right. Okay, well, that's good. It's getting there. It is getting there. Uh, the first few years we were a, a cash-only operation, and that was difficult and a little scary. Yes. <laughs> also a weird market phenomenon. That that's other right. markets do not have to deal in all cash. Yes, yeah. indeed. Well, I see that you've pulled out, so we should switch gears now um, and, and sort of bring this back to beer a little bit in two ways. One is I think we should drink beer, and you, right. can, you can choose that. But while we're drinking the beer, we can also, we wanted to talk a little bit about the marijuana plant itself and the similarities that marijuana has with uh, hops. That's right. And Jeff knows a lot about this, and so do you, Sally. Well, Sally knows a lot about it. So I can just sit and drink beer. (laughs) (laughs) But we, um, because we knew that uh, we were going to do this, we went to the store yesterday, and I said, Sally, pick out a beer you want us to drink tomorrow. And this is the beer she selected, which I have in front of me. Uh, It is, should I introduce it? I guess you you should should introduce it, yeah. Um, It's uh, from a really cool brewery in uh, the St. John's neighborhood called... Occidental, and I don't think we've talked about it very much, but they mainly do German, they do only German style beers and mainly mainly ales, although they have a spectacular Pilsner. And I know Sally was kind of on the fence about whether to go for the Kolsch or the, the Pilsner, but she went for the Kolsch, which we okay. have in front of us. Nice. Uh, and Sally, do you want to talk about your connection to Kolsch or this beer or anything? 
She's shaking her head no. now. Well, let me say that Sally and <laughs> Sally I... Sally likes this beer. Sally likes this beer, and Sally and I spent uh, two or three days in the city of Cologne together drinking Kolsch. So she definitely She knows has, a good Kolsch. She knows a good Kolsch, and she definitely has a uh, uh, kind of firsthand connection to the style. So yeah. This is a nice 16-ounce can. Actually, we have two of them. So I'm open yeah. we're, 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 we're opening two just because. Why not? We had to buy it in a four-pack. They come in cans. <laughs> It is true. I got to go with Jeff for the entire Germany portion of his beer Bible research in Europe. Yeah. So, and in fact, uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> I was so gonna. I was not gonna, so much a fact, that is it? <laughs> I was gonna say, in fact, I uh, I picked up with Sally in Germany right after I left you in UK, but that's not true. I picked up with Sally in, in Belgium. Belgium. Yeah, yes. it was the next so, year that we went to Germany together. But, yeah. Uh, never mind. Uh. So here we have our Kolsch. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, it's um, very Kolschy, very golden looking. Uh, bright, brilliant, I would say. Absolutely not a speck of uh, yeah. non clarity in there at all. By the way, I've never had this beer. Just mm. This is going to be fun. Are you kidding me? I'm not. I'm wow. Not, never been toxicity, even after all your recommendations. Huh. Yeah, I love this beer. It's a really cool pub, too. It's really far away from me. If you ever get out to St. John's. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's right. You live south. It's north. Ooh, that's very good. But the malts are just amazing in this Kolsch. Uh, it has that really uh, firm minerality up front, and mm-hmm. then uh, it just opens up at the end with those beautiful malts. Sally's a little bit of a secret weapon that I deploy when I drink beer. <laughs> uh, she has a better palate than I do, uh, and she can also detect uh, DMS, which I cannot. So she's my DMS guide. Um, and she always says, oh, I don't know anything about beer, um, because she compares herself to me. But the truth is she's traveled extensively in Belgium, uh, Germany, and throughout the United States, and has been on and it's tagged I, along with you on yeah countless and, junkets yeah a number of brewery tours with some of the world's finest brewers and mm-hmm. so Sally actually knows quite a bit about beer yeah and she has a good palate so she can pick she might have up. even read your book she, no, <laughs> no, no she's read as much as you have oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey now yeah I've read it <laughs> it's on your shelves that's all I ask yeah I mean I you know mm. Uh, okay, so uh, let's talk about the hot plant mm-hmm. and the marijuana plant. Who'd like to start? You two, because I know nothing. <laughs> uh, well, let's just let me let me go back uh, as a way of introducing this and saying that your primary vessel mm-hmm. is a beer fermenter. Is that right? That is correct. So uh, when craft beer got going in Portland, low these many years ago. A lot of the brewers were using uh, adapted and modified equipment from the dairy industry. Uh, and in cannabis, a lot of us ended up working with modified equipment from the beer industry. So, yeah, we took a fermenter because we wanted something with a conical bottom to make it easier to drain out and capture the plant material. Uh, and then we added a heating element to that, and we actually used that for um, the infusion process, which involves... A certain amount of heat. So when you're pulling out the uh, various constituent elements, um, you're pulling out the active ingredients, but you're pulling out a lot of other stuff, mm-hmm. including, and this is a big word in the cannabis industry, and it's it's actually not a big word in the beer industry, although it's a big feature of the beer industry, even though people don't know about it, 
which is terpenes. Mm-hmm. And these are hydrocarbons, I think. Uh, I didn't look that up before I started talking, so that's from memory. <laughs> well, just Please. say it with authority and yeah. no one will question you. <laughs> Please tweet and email your, uh, <laughs> your, your criticisms. Um, and in beer, we know of things like caryophylline and myrcene, um, and there are related compounds like linalool. Uh, and they these exist in cannabis as well. They do. And why don't you talk about their function in cannabis and, and how they're kind of like how people know about these and, and all. So terpenes are, uh, they provide the, what I think of as the primary uh, flavor components of the different strains. Uh, so people all, in cannabis also talk about uh, myrcene and uh, caryophylline, uh, linalool, limonene, geraniol. Pinene, is that pinene. one? Pinene, yeah. So those those are sort of the big six, and there are a few other ones as well. Uh, and uh, Oregon has these labs that are certified to test cannabis, and you can go and get a full terpene profile on your strain, and a lot of growers do that. And these are all just flavor and aroma compounds, n- nothing psychoactive. They're, uh, they're not psychoactive. Uh, well, they're non-intoxicating. Okay. So we make a distinction between psychoactive and intoxicating because okay. CBD is non-intoxicating, but it's very psychoactive, right. which is why there are, there are currently clinical trials underway with uh, vets with PTSD using CBD to see if it's an effective treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and myrcene in the terpenes, myrcene in particular, and I don't know what the research is to back this up, uh, but it's commonly identified in the cannabis world as the thing that makes certain strains sleepy or, uh, creates Mm. couch lock. Uh, (laughs) 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 You smoke, you can't go anywhere. Uh, and, uh, often people will talk about well, this is an indica versus a sativa. At this point, it back in some murky past, those were actually genetically two different plant strains. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these days, most plants have been crossbred and rebred so many times that it's very hard to identify. Uh. But it's particularly a, an indica or sativa. Um, and, and mostly when people make that distinction, they're trying to say, oh, this is energetic and uplifting versus right. sleepy. Uh, and as far as we can tell at this point, those different characteristics actually come from the terpene mix and, and, and possibly some of the minor cannabinoids. Uh, so it, if you go into a, a lot of cannabis shops, they'll have the flower that they have for sale divided up by indica, sativa, and hybrid. Uh, but it's basically meaningless. I've seen lab data where they're actually doing genetics-level testing, and they'll say, well, this thing that's being sold as a sativa is actually 88% indica <laughs> genetically. So it's no longer a terribly meaningful distinction. I, w- I wonder if the... If the uh, terpenes in beer could be... Uh, uh, I know. <laughs> you have the same thought, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Whether it affects the way that the alcohol affects the body and... Particularly in given the, the quantities you're finding in IPAs now, um, you know, 20, 30 times as much 
uh, hop oils and stuff getting in beers. Right. Common, you know, the, this Kolsch right now has almost no terpenes in it, yeah. um, but a, an IPA will have uh, obviously a lot more. So yeah, I wonder about that too. And and in in cannabis, when we look at strains like blueberry, whatever, or tangerine, whatever, right. The the flavor that it's pointing to that comes from the terpene profile. As far as I understand it, yes. So the the things that are bred to have tropical flavors versus uh, there there's a whole set that have very cheesy flavors, and uh, that appears to be. Are there um, any that have piney flavors? Probably. In, I can't in, think of anything off the top of my head. I'm just having this. Feel free to write in with your comments <laughs> and criticisms. <laughs> That's right. I'm just having this. You could be describing hops. It's very tropical here. Yeah. It's like one one of the big things with uh, hops is that there's a piney vein. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I wondered about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and terpenes do have particular boiling points. They're chemical components. And so uh, depending on the heat that you're processing at, uh, they may burn off or be destroyed. And I, I assume the same thing happens in uh, in beer. If you're boiling for a long time, you know, you don't end up with a lot of that uh, hop character. And if you're dry hopping, you're pulling a lot more of those aroma compounds and not, not altering or damaging them. Well, right. this is a, a thing that I'm really interested in having you discuss a, a moment. Uh, the beer industry is not very sophisticated as far as this goes. Mm. Um, they are not looking at it at the level uh, of, of individual terpene profiles. Um, they talk about oil profiles, and they knew, do know what the constituent elements of the oils are. But in terms of the amount of stuff that gets in the final beer, very little work has been done. Mm. You know, that There is some work, and there is some sense of how these hops, uh, these oils interact with, especially beer is a is a biochemical thing, so how it interacts possibly with yeast during fermentation, but but pretty crude compared to what's happening in some of the products that you'll find if you go down to a organ dispensary that are made with these terpenes. So describe some of that stuff. So one of the main ways of uh, extracting components from cannabis to make things like vape cartridges uh, is to use a, a, a CO2 setup. And it's a, it's a very expensive piece of laboratory equipment. And um, a sophisticated processor uh, can actually take a strand of cannabis, run it through the system, and isolate out the individual components. So they'll get a, a distillate of THC and an isolate of CBD, and then they'll get all the terpenes individually. Uh, and then it, some of those processors are then recombining it. Uh, and saying, well, for this cartridge, I want so much THC, so much CBD, and I want it to taste like Blue Dream, which I think should have this much, much Myrcene and this much linalool. And uh, they're, they're recombining the things that they separated during the process. And then sometimes if they, they can't get the flavor profile they want from the, the cannabis plant they just took apart, they'll process some other botanical uh, because all of these terpenes, mm-hmm, sure. you know, linalool is the primary component of lavender. Right? Uh, yeah, and um, there's one in coriander that uh, Stan Hieronymus has talked about that's very similar to a, a hop thing. So, yeah, yeah, so they'll go ahead and extract something like that and then add back extra until they've tuned in the flavor exactly that they, they want in the cartridge. Uh, 
Uh, and then a lot of folks who are making edibles are buying uh, THC distillate and CBD isolate because they actually want to make a food product that doesn't have any, any of the of flavor right. components of the terpenes. They just want people to be able to get high or get a therapeutic effect without interfering with the flavor of their chocolate bar or their right. piece of cake. That sounds enormously expensive to build a lab like that where you can... Is that, is that, is that a function of all the corporate money that's coming into... Cannabis? Uh, so it, it was really, there was, I was talking with our CPA about this today. There was a big trend in 2015 where every farmer wanted to buy a CO2 machine. And, oh. uh, depending on the setup, they cost between about 100000 and 300000 for oh. the equipment itself. Mm-hmm. And then, it's pretty damn expensive. And then based They're on. They're not as expensive as I thought. Actually. Yeah. Based on Oregon law, it has to go in a blast proof room and it. it <laughs> It, you know, because it, it functions under very high pressure, yeah. uh, and so there, there are all these safety rules around it and ventilation and all of that. So it can be quite expensive to set up one of these right. operations. <clears throat> but once you have a CO2 machine running, you can do an infinite number of things with it. You can generate right. all the See, that all sounds to me products. like economies of scale, like consolidation, yeah. like big business. And, it's true. Yeah. It's true. And of course, we're on the other side. Uh, so uh, the medical research that does exist indicates very clearly that what's commonly referred to as the entourage effect mm-hmm. actually accounts for uh, the therapeutic benefits of most of cannabis and medical science would say basically we don't know what it is in the plant like there's some research on THC there's some on CBD uh, we know that when it's a whole plant uh, extraction it's more effective and we don't know exactly why which which of those hundred chemical components is really right. making this happen versus that happen so, so once you start breaking it up and recombining it who knows what the therapeutic benefits are? Exactly. You know? So you may be getting some CBD and you may be seeing some anti-inflammatory effect, but uh, there was a piece of research last year out of Israel where they tested CBD isolate versus whole plant. And uh, with the isolate, it, um, it basically produced a bell curve. There was a, there was a perfect dose at which you got some benefit. And if mm-hmm. you took more, it dropped off radically. And uh, the whole plant, it, it produced a, you know, a perfect geometric line. So the more you took, the more therapeutic benefit mm-hmm. you get, which is exactly the result you would want to see with a pharmaceutical formulation. Right. Uh, so, so we really don't believe in, we believe in the plant. We believe that nature did something right and that... Uh, or, or that humans have, this plant co-evolved. Exactly. <laughs> I think they or, that, or that God made the plant the way she did for a reason. Oh, exactly. <laughs> We don't have to get too deep into this. All but you masculine God believers can send us emails. <laughs> uh, the body has uh, an endocannabinoid system, which is a, a system of receptors distributed throughout the body, uh, and the body creates its own cannabinoids. Hmm. Uh, so we we have essentially co-evolved with cannabinoids and. Uh, medical science doesn't know a ton about the endocannabinoid system and how it works and why it works, but we know that we are uniquely well suited to engage with the plant and to have our bodies respond. Yeah, when I heard all this stuff about uh, pulling out the, the, the various terpenes, I, I immediately thought, you know, this this is 
I'm not. I'm really surprised that breweries aren't doing this and just dosing their beers with uh, exactly the flavors they want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you want that to taste like, um, uh, you know, a, a, a chocolate sundae with a little or a banana split with that's got cherry and banana and chocolate and vanilla in there, you just pull out all the all the terpenes you want, put it's, it in. It's probably coming. It sh- I, I, it seems to me like it's one of those things where the cannabis industry is way ahead of the beer industry. Yeah, and People, particularly making these incredibly saturated hoppy beers, uh, could probably do it more precisely because beer don't care about whole whole plant. <laughs> right, that's it. <laughs> it's all about the sensory thing. So uh, yeah, and especially if you want to create the same that same IPA flavor pro- profile year after year, every single time, crops, yeah. no matter what the harvest was mm-hmm. and who planted what in the hop fields. Yeah, so I do expect. But it almost to seems this. like cheating. I don't know. Yeah, well, you, this, get it, you get so far away from the the, the, the artisanal natural product. When you and I talked to uh, Tom Shellhammer mm-hmm. uh, and his food science team, who had, who had done a Franken beer that was absolutely spectacular, and he said, "Well, that's the food science approach. Why wouldn't you use these techniques?" And we were both <laughs> like slightly the, the traditional tradi- traditionalist in us were slightly alarmed by that. But yeah. yeah, it's um, it's out there, and I think that if a brewery started using that, particularly probably a large industrial brewery that can't uh that doesn't have the vessels to steep hops uh you know it can be an easy way to get those same flavors without having the equipment and in fact you're the one who long ago posed a question to me that really unnerved me (laughs) which was if you could um get get a barrel aged flavor and put it in a beer and you couldn't tell the difference Mm -hmm. wouldn't you would and, and it was cost half as much wouldn't you buy the that one and I was irritated and it stuck under my saddle for all this time and I still remember it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's I common, mean, the, I suppose. The American food industry went through this. I mean, we grew up in a time that was still that better living through science. Isn't yeah. it isn't it better if you can Can peas and T V dinners yeah. and, and buy your Velveeta and uh, yeah, we've come back around and, and again it's still probably the majority of the marketplace that's buying really highly processed foods containing right. flavors that are developed in giant factories in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, but there's a strong minority market that goes to the farmer's market and is locavore and cares about slow food and all of that. And that's the equivalent market that we want to be in, in yeah, cannabis. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the growing one, I think, in general, so... Yeah, so let's talk a little bit as we go out here. Uh, you have um, strong, if not direct, familiarity with the beer industry. Mm-hmm. And now you've been doing this stuff with the cannabis industry. And one of the big things that's really freaking out the beer people and all, everybody in alcohol is that cannabis is going to come and eat their lunch. And um, here in Oregon, so one, one interesting thing that um, I'll just... Just, just sprang into my head, so I'll mention it. Oregon has a, a, a really impressive, unsurprisingly impressive set of uh, plant uh, and cannabis, like many more varieties than other con- other states have. Is that right? It, so it's like a really crafty and artisanal it, thing that you'd expect Oregon to have. My understanding is that we have the greatest genetic diversity of cannabis plants of anywhere in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, because it... Uh, we have perfect outdoor growing conditions here in large swaths of the state, and uh, we've had a lot of passionate outlaws growing it all through the period of prohibition. <laughs> yeah, Pat and I wouldn't know anything. Patrick and I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, 
Yeah, so I was going to say, we there, there's not a lot, we're still learning a lot about cannabis, but uh, uh, the economics literature actually has something to say about uh, out the, 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 the complementarity or substitutability of beer and cannabis. And so I was looking up, the one thing I know in the back of my head is... Oh, some nice tech language there, man. Yeah. It's like we're straight out of a white paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a study um, uh, done by... Uh, three three economists, two of them uh, I know. One was my former colleague in Colorado named Dan Rees, and uh, the other one is a University of Oregon economist named Benjamin Hansen, and they were looking at the effect of uh, medical marijuana laws on uh, traffic fatalities in the states that enacted medical marijuana laws, and they found that traffic fatalities, particularly involving alcohol, went way down. Uh, I'm not going to describe what Jeff is doing. It's not something that a beer lover should probably be. <laughs> I, I just got shot the wifely, what are you doing, idiot? <laughs> Stop that. Uh, Never mind. Anyway, the, the result of the, the article, essentially that the, the, the passing of medical marijuana laws um, sharply reduced the number of traffic fatalities, particularly involving alcohol-related accidents. And so one of the takeaways from that is that it seems like Marijuana and uh, alcohol are substitutes. That the increase in availability and lowering the price of marijuana has uh, reduced significantly the the alcohol consumption and, and purchasing. So that's the only data point I know mm-hmm. is that one study that looks like there might be a, a substitute effect, which kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I wanted to ask Sally: Is that substitute effect happening at the? You know, there's the Pareto curve thing where you have the most heavy users using um, the small amount of heavy users using the most of the product. Right. So is it, is it, you know, who, who, in this case, if you have a drunk driving population, those are probably aligned closely to heavy users. So are those the people who are switching? Is that the same? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would describe it in a slightly different way, which is the people who are using it for the, the psychoactive effects, right? Right. Like people who want to drink to get drunk and want to, use marijuana to get stoned. Yeah. Right? So those seem like strong substitutes right there because the, the, the end goal is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the people who are connoisseurs or using it therapeutically are probably quite different. And then I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily expect a substitute relationship, maybe even a complementary relationship. Yeah. What, so what is your, having observed this up, up, up close for five years... Yeah, and of course I have no data on yeah, this, but the way, the way Patrick <laughs> describes it makes perfect sense to me. I think that if you're a lover of craft beer and you're a lover of craft cannabis, you're probably not having less of either. Uh, but yeah, if you're primary, if, if you're going to the liquor store and buying something strong so that you can get really drunk and suddenly cannabis is cheap and easily available and you like the way that feels, you may, you may swap one for the other. And the, the one thing I do know is, uh, so Canada is looking to legalize recreational cannabis nationwide right. this year, and the beer and alcohol lobby is very, very worried. Yeah. And so we've been hearing a lot of anxiety from them that this is really going to cut into their market share. And they're trying to influence the way that the laws and rules get written to make sure that they don't take too big a hit. Yeah. An enterprising economist, I think, could use Oregon as a case study and look. And I would be particularly interested in uh, the interaction between marijuana and 
uh, um, macro lagers mm-hmm. and, and marijuana and craft beer. And I would suggest, I would expect that the big interaction is probably between marijuana and macro lagers. I would, mm-hmm. I would too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I thought I saw somewhere a study on, uh, uh, call on Colorado, uh, alcohol consumption that said that alcohol consumption overall was down slightly since legalized, uh, uh, since recreational marijuana uh, was legalized there, but that craft beer continued to grow. So, Mm. you know, that would be, that would be what you would expect if you, if your theory is true. Well, from a, from a, from a uh, scholarly perspective, this, this sort of uh, amazing glut in supply of marijuana produces kind of what we call a natural experiment, a nice natural experiment. So all of a mm. sudden, marijuana prices have really dropped have. Uh, suddenly. And so you can use that uh, potentially to identify this causal link between marijuana use and, and beer mm-hmm. consumption. So get on it. Get, yeah. <laughs> get your grant. Submit your grant now. <laughs> and I, I know we probably need to wrap this up, but uh, that phenomenon of having this glut in the market is producing a compression in the cannabis industry that looks... So the cannabis industry is, whatever, three years old here in Oregon, um, the recreational cannabis industry. and in Not those, even two. Not even two years old. Yeah. In that period of time, um, the, the it's like the whole cycles of craft beer have been playing out uh, from artisanal... Uh, to now consolidation as many of these little companies, which are now not able to stay in business, are getting put on the block or, or getting bought out by bigger companies. So Yeah, and I want to mention two things there. One thing that uh, the general public typically does not know is uh, at the federal level, we are taxed like drug dealers. <laughs> So uh, we, according to the feds, you are drug dealers. Exactly. So we pay a severe tax penalty. We declare, we have our gross revenue. We can deduct our cost of goods sold. We get our our uh, gross profit, and we pay tax on that. And we're not allowed to deduct any sales, marketing, general, or administrative costs in calculating our taxable income. So it often works out that. Uh, you know, companies are paying 60% of their actual net revenue in tax because they're being taxed on this much higher revenue number. And so lots of small businesses that had great years filed their tax returns and then realized they owed the feds $150,000 that they did not have available Mm -hmm. in cash. And that's really fueling the consolidation, they were counting on selling their crop at a certain price just right. just to hang on. Right, yeah, very uh, similar to the beer industry. So. Yeah, and before cannabis launched, all of us who were making the shift from medical to recreational talked a lot about it being like uh, the period in the 80s when craft beer was launching and that was going to be this new industry and the next great craft revolution for Oregon. And the reality has been it's actually much more similar, I think, to the period right after alcohol prohibition ended, mm. where there are a lot of insane rules that are driven primarily by moral judgment and stigma mm-hmm. and probably... And, and, and fear. And fear, and probably, you know the history better than I do, Jeff, probably there were a lot of small producers who had been working in in the underground during uh, prohibition. Uh, prohibition who thought that they were going to make a killing once it was legal again, but there was a period of rapid consolidation, and then we ended up with, you know... Uh, a few really large companies dominating the market then for decades. 
Yeah, that was more a, a function uh, of the way it played out with liquor. Um, it was much harder. There was not so much uh, bootleg beer going on in Prohibition, so mm. I don't know so much about that. Yeah, yeah. maybe maybe it's not a parallel. but uh, Well, it's probably a parallel with uh, whiskey makers. Like if we would look at Jim Beam's history or something, that's probably some... Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, pure it would, speculation. It would be interesting. It's something that just occurred to me recently because we went through a very difficult period of uh, getting our building up to code with the city mm-hmm. in order uh, to be able to operate. And the city didn't have any zoning rules in place or building <laughs> code rules in place for how you deal with a cannabis business. Right. Uh, and and during that process, I kept thinking, yeah, when Rob and Kurt Widmer were doing this, they were like, two businesses going down to the city and saying, hey, we want to do this thing that nobody's ever done before. Let's make some code together. And in cannabis, it was like 400 businesses showed up on the same day with their right. plan saying, right. you, you got, I'm off the market until you approve me and I move forward with my renovation. What's going on here? So it, it, we have, it, it's been much more intense and much more condensed than the more organic growth of craft beer. Yeah, with the beer, it was the opposite that it was with cannabis. In the absence of uh, rules, uh, except for the way the buying and selling went, making was was really like just ad hoc. And so I remember Rob and Kurt told me the story about how um, they had a wastewater and the city was really confused because they didn't know anything about brewing. And they thought that they were throwing all their spent grain and all their spent hops in the wastewater. And they're like, you're going to have to do this, all this stuff. And they said, no, 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 it's just... It's just the water. We're giving the the grain to the pigs. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's no problem. Come <laughs> away. Yeah. And then it was just some guy at the city who didn't yeah. understand it. And then, yeah. you know, there were no laws. So, yeah, yeah it was really But there was, there was no pent-up demand for craft beer right. at the time that they were launching. That's right. And when <laughs> recreational well, cannabis... Yeah, very much the opposite. Yeah, which, which was the thing that really made me start to think about. What did it look like? immediately post-prohibition for alcohol mm-hmm. it's there are a lot more parallels mm-hmm. right. in terms of how the market that's a very interesting point yeah because yeah. craft beer i always think about this derived demand it's been a slow process of teaching yeah. people what beer can be and what it can taste like and yeah. so the market grows and grows and grows but yeah with cannabis it was it was just yeah we've been using demand, this yeah. all along and we haven't been able to buy it <laughs> legally and now we can and right. people were showing up at at uh, dispensaries just to kind of rubberneck like I can't believe I can walk in here and buy this I don't even want to buy it today I just want to see it <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I will say it as an aside as both the, for, for listeners who don't live in states that have legalized recreational cannabis as a parent driving down the street and having the little guys who hold the signs and twirl them around you know like usually mm-hmm. they do it for like mattress stores and pizza stores <laughs> they do it for for marijuana shops now and so they've got like hey you know three dollar grams or whatever yeah. <laughs> and twirling their signs and having your kid in the back seat say hey dad <laughs> what's going on <laughs> uh, it's a new world yeah uh, i did not know i've not seen that that's interesting well I, and that is supposed to be illegal <laughs> is that right yeah the, the oregon liquor can Control Commission is in charge of managing the recreational cannabis system, and they they really have been trying to crack down on any kind of advertising. Yeah, that, well, that for many years that you may that minors may be exposed yeah. to. Oh yeah, and for many years you couldn't advertise happy hour prices, for example, because of the OLCC right. uh, here as well. So there's a lot of things there. Yeah. But I will also say, as a parent, that it hasn't nearly been as 
it's it's it becomes normal very quickly mm-hmm. and it becomes sort of part of life and then you teach your kids about marijuana as you would about alcohol right know, it's like it's this thing and then, so anyway uh, at, I was a little nervous as a parent when we started and mm-hmm. I'm less so now mm-hmm. yeah. although they, t- they definitely do recognize the smell as we walk around downtown <laughs> Portland <laughs> yeah. so uh, well Sally Allworth co-owner, co-founder of Luminous Botanicals. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. It's been a delightful conversation. It has been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. I hope the commute wasn't too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I managed to make it here from the TV room. (laughs) Safe travels home. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, so, uh, do, you, do you want to hang out while we just do some wrap up here? Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You should I join still in. have some of this lovely call. Yeah. yeah your mine's gone, one. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we opened two, and it's already done. Yeah. I know. It's Thanks Friday. Too. That's Friday evening for you. Exactly. All right. So apparently we have no mailbag. No, and that's a function of us being pretty slow. I think the I think we're about to get back into the every two weeks thing. Yes, of course. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, my fault. Well, yeah. Although I, mean, I although you have. Given me a sense of your junkets. Yeah, I have a ton up. of junkets coming up, including I'll be in uh, Maryland next week visiting the new Guinness Brewery on a junket from my sponsor, uh, the Guinness Brewing Company yeah. of Dublin, the, Ireland. The sponsor of your blog. Yes. Uh, which leads me to note that the sponsor of the podcast is still available to That's... anyone and everyone. <laughs> Luminous Botanicals might want to get in on the record, by the way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Just so you know. Take that under advisement. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and then you're off to Madrid at some point. Yes, uh, Junket to Madrid. Turns out beer writer's not such a dredge, is it? That's uh, right. There's a brewery there called M.A. H O U. Yeah, I never knew how to pronounce it, but Mahu. Yeah, it's, Mahu, it's yeah. the big one in Spain. Right. Yeah. I didn't know how to pronounce it either. Yeah. I was hoping you would know. No, um, I didn't know. And I, I'm taking advantage of that trip to spend a month, uh, a month, a week in uh, Belgium. <laughs> I was very excited beforehand. Uh, so I will uh, come back with some tape and stories from Belgium. So that'll be cool. Good. Um, right. But. Yeah. Uh, amid all that, I'll have good tape, and we should still try to be able. We yep. maybe still pull this off. Yep. Summer's coming. A lot of potting. Um, I did want to uh, throw a shirt. In, I want to shoehorn something into the Sherpa. Yes. Thing here. Let's part part of which I just mentioned, which was me going to Belgium and having some of this. Another part is for those of you in town, uh, in the in the Oregon Northwest region, uh, next Saturday, the. Uh, June 2nd, mm-hmm. um, there's a really cool event happening in Hillsborough at a place called uh, McNally's Tap Room, where I will be giving a presentation about uh, lambics. And we're going to taste some pretty kick-ass mm-hmm. lambics, and I will talk about their manufacture and production. Um, and uh, we will be drinking, uh, we'll have on hand uh, Bone Mariage Parfait, one of my very favorites, Hanson's Ode Creek. Uh, Ode Beardsel, Ode Guse, Lindemann's Cuvée René, and Lindemann's uh, people mostly know for their sweet ones, but this is their straight, straight pure uh, uh, Guse. It's really well made. And then a local one, Block 15's Turbulent Consequence, which is uh, Nick Arsner's uh, spontaneously fermented beer, and that's a creek uh-huh. uh, that will be made with Bing Cherries. Um, so we'll be tasting all of those, and we'll be talking about Lambics, and it's only 25 bucks, so... Don't leave me hanging if you're in town. Go check that out. That's It's a great deal just for the beer alone. Plus, I'll have cool photos and talk about Lambic. So once so again, it's Saturday, June 2nd? 
At 3 p.m. At 3 p.m. In Hillsborough at McNally's. Hillsborough at McNally's. Okay. So um, go online, uh, go onto your Facebook and Google around and you'll find McNally's Tap Room and you can uh, figure out how to, how to figure out all that. Excellent. So, and uh, so the Sherpa is come next week and drinks, <laughs> drink really cool uh, beers with me. There you go. Yeah. Excellent. So there we go. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, first, we'd like to encourage you to rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes. Sally's done one, but not the other, so get on it. Uh, <laughs> which helps other listeners find us, apparently. Yeah. Uh, a few more words. A few more words going out about how to contact us. If you'd like to send us some feedback, the few good ways to do it: one is to email uh, Jeff at Jeff at com or visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send us your questions and comments. Jeff blogs at the Birvana blog and tweets at at Birvana. Patrick tweet and Patrick tweets at at Birvanomics, Um and does actually tweet and he's, he's got an interesting Twitter feed. So check in with Patrick there. It's different yeah, than mine for sure. I do. All right. Well, I'm almost. I have like a little tiny. Yeah, I have enough. <laughs> I have enough to, to I think avoid the check curse of seven years of bad sex. Uh, if I oh, is that that's wrong? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you if you stakes. if you fail to look at the people you're toasting, or, or I think if you don't do it with if you do it with water or something, uh, right. seven years bad luck, seven years bad sex. So yeah, that's worse than bad luck. That's yeah. way worse. <laughs> than, it's the worst kind of bad All luck. All right, cheers, Jeff and Sally. All right, cheers. cheers.